Hi everyone, my name is Samantha Holloway. I'm a reader and programme director in the Centre for Medical Education, School of Medicine, based at the College of Life and Biomedical Sciences at the Cardiff University in the UK. You're now listening to Yuma podcast. Yuma is an abbreviation for the European Wound Management Association. Yuma is a not-for-profit umbrella organisation linking national wound management organisations, individuals and groups with interest in wound care. Are you curious about the latest trends and topics within wound management? Do you have 20 minutes to spare? Then this Yuma brand new podcast might be for you. Yuma podcast is a place for discussion and learning where you can also listen more about the work of other experts and peers in your field. I'm pleased to have Karen Uzi, Professor of Skin Integrity and Director for the Institute of Skin Integrity and Infection Prevention at the University of Huddersfield here in the UK. And she's with me today to discuss the antimicrobial stewardship in wound management. Karen was the lead author on the joint e-learning course by the European Wound Management Association and the British Society for Antimicrobial Chemotherapy. She is also one of the authors of the UMA document, Preventing and Managing Surgical Site Infections Across Healthcare Sectors. Welcome, Karen. Thank you, Sam, for inviting me to this. That's fine. The topic of our podcast today is probably one of the most important issues when treating a patient with an infected wound. That is antimicrobial stewardship. Karen, can you tell me a little bit about the principles of antimicrobial stewardship in wound management? Absolutely. So, as you know, we're all aware that open wounds are be colonised with bacteria, but that we should only be using antibiotic therapy when required and for those wounds that are actually clinically infected. Mm-hmm. There's been a range of studies across the globe that have consistently revealed that about 80% of antibiotic courses and 20% of all antibiotics administered are prescribed in the community. And it's interesting to note that both in the outpatient-outpatient setting, up to 50% of these treatment courses are unnecessary or inappropriate, Mm -hmm. which is quite surprising, really. Mm -hmm. So antimicrobial stewardship is an interprofessional effort across a continuum of patient care that should involve this timely and optimal selection of antimicrobial agents. We need to be looking at the doses and duration of use and that the aim is to achieve the best clinical outcome with minimal toxicity to the patient and the environment. So really, Sam, in simple terms, AMS includes avoiding prescribing antimicrobials when they're not indicated, prescribing an appropriate regime where antimicrobial therapy is indicated, and ordering therapy for the correct duration, so long enough to ensure that we're managing that infection, but not so long that the patient is still having this treatment 12 months down the line when it's not required, and using an agent that is the least risk for adverse effects for the patient and the community itself. So it's increasing awareness, really, Sam, and that it's everybody's business, really, to be involved in antimicrobial stewardship. Just as a follow-up question to that, Karen, um, you mentioned when antimicrobials may be indicated and not indicated. Are you able just to expand a little bit on that? Yes, I think what we've seen over a couple of years, it's that staff are very much aware of preventing infection and being able to identify infection at an early stage. But from that, some people have 
started using this just in case scenario. Mm. So using antimicrobial dressings on a wound that isn't clinically infected because they're worried that it may get infected in the future. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't be doing that because that's just inappropriate use of antimicrobials. And whilst I appreciate there are some areas would have to do that, so people that are immunocompromised, for example, mm. will probably require antimicrobials to prevent an infection. But people that have come in for a surgical um, operation don't actually require antimicrobials if there is no clinical need or no clinical signs and symptoms of an infection. Thank you. So from what you've said, it seems that implementing antimicrobial stewardship measures in clinical practice involves making quite a few changes to everyday clinical practice, perhaps. Can you share your thoughts on how to support the implementation of these principles into clinical practice? Yes, I think people are aware of the principles, Sam. It's just sometimes it's not always at the forefront of people's minds because they're so very busy. Mm. However, to ensure that everybody's aware of it, we need to think about education. This is key and it's interprofessional education so that it'll encompass areas related to encouraging optimal treatment, information about how to prescribe and various treatment choices. So what is there on the shelf that we can use what can we prescribe, and also what antimicrobials can staff access. And it's useful for clinicians new to antimicrobial stewardship as well to locate a mentor who Mm. can offer advice and support with their prescribing habits as well. So someone that knows about AMS and can share their thoughts. The other way is obviously what we call restrictive methods. And this is when we try and constrain how clinicians may prescribe. So limiting access, for example, to specific antibiotic agents, or even by instituting automatic stop orders or time limits for antibiotic treatments, so that the prescription will flash up that we need to stop now, think about it and reassess what's going on with that patient. If we look at work that Lipsky and their team have been involved in. They describe a hybrid type of intervention, which is aimed at encouraging all clinicians to take an antibiotic time out, round about 48 hours after prescribing, to review whether or not the patient has an infection and if they're on the most appropriate antibiotic regime and for how long that therapy should continue. Mm. And actually, if we look at all the research and the available data, It suggests that persuasive interventions are less effective in the short time than restrictive methods, but may have a longer, greater, long-term effect on prescribing practices. And within England, Public Health England have published the the Start Smart and then Focus programme. And this provides a pathway that's helpful in engaging clinicians in daily stewardship activity. And staff can go and have a look at this online and then adopt or adapt it to their local clinical areas and healthcare settings. Okay, thank you, Karen. Um, I just had a couple of um, follow-up questions uh, about uh, a couple of things you said, if that's okay. Um, Just about the automatic stop orders, is that something that's in place already or is that a suggestion that's been looked at as a potential intervention? I think, Sam, it's in place in some areas, but not everywhere. Mm. And it might not always be appropriate for some areas, but I think it's an area of good practice to think about. So even if they don't have an automatic stop, maybe we as practitioners should be thinking 
I need to be thinking about this after 48 hours or after a few days to make sure that that patient is on the right antibiotic. And this is where I hate to go on about it too much, but why interprofessional work yeah, is so important yeah. that as clinicians, we're able to work with the microbiologists as well to review these regimes for antibiotics and antimicrobials. Mm. And of course, the pharmacists as well, be that sort of inpatient or outpatient setting pharmacists maybe also should be thinking about this as well. Definitely. And I think sometimes we forget about the pharmacist and they are a great Mm. source of information and specialist in this area. So I guess going back to something you said before about mentors, that may be a useful link for people to think about is, uh, um, you know, linking up to their their local pharmacist and, and discussing these issues, really. Yeah. And not to be scared about going to other professional groups, Sam, as well. So as nurses, sometimes we try and go to another nurse who we think can be a specialist in this area, mm. their mentor, and we forget about the pharmacists and the microbiologists. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then finally, the Start Smart and then Focus program, that's been in place a little while and you said is available online. Is that something that people outside of England can access? Oh, yes. Yeah. I know it's written by Public Health England, but the principles relate to everybody. Patients in England are very similar to patients in Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland, and across the whole of Europe. Okay, that's great. So Karen, thinking about key infection prevention measures that all professionals, uh, healthcare professionals should follow, Karen, can you reflect on some of these and give us some, um, some of your thoughts? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, every clinician from any professional group should be aware of the signs and symptoms of infection. We need to understand what we're looking for and early signs. Also be aware of local policies. And local policies are really useful, Sam, in that they will Mm. signpost people to different professional groups and give them pathways of care that should be followed. But importantly, we've got to make sure that the patient and the carers are involved in this as well. Patients generally are looked after in the community or a lot of patients are looked after in the community Mm. And it's a patient and their carer or family that will be looking at that wound probably more times than the clinician is. So they need to be aware as well of what are the early signs of infection. So if they're getting pain or if the wound looks red or it's painful to touch, then they should know that they need to contact their general practitioner or their local nurse as well. Mm. One of the biggest things to prevent infection is appropriate hand washing and washing hands regularly. And washing them properly, not just showing them the water and moving your hands back away from the water, Mm -hmm. but cleaning them properly and following guidelines. Washing them at home as well and patients and carers as well to know to wash their hands regularly. Mm -hmm. I was speaking to some clinicians the other day and they were saying that they do wash their hands and they use gloves a lot. But sometimes it's difficult to get hold of gloves and it's not a appropriate to be washing gloves Mm. and then using them Mm. gloves should be thrown away after they've been worn once Mm -hmm. another issue is staff need to be aware not to come to work when they've got an illness Mm -hmm. so if they've got a sore throat or a strep throat to stay away from patients that have open wounds or to stay away generally from patients until their infection is cleared up otherwise they're going to be passing it on to other people And again, going back to the gloves, to use disposable gloves where appropriate and disposable aprons and not go from patient to patient with those same disposable items. Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was interesting. I was talking to a colleague recently who was saying that actually talking about patients really was that, you know, patients may be a little bit more proactive and, and, and despite maybe the healthcare professional having said they've washed their hands, the patient could actually say to them, I didn't see you, see you wash your hands. Would you mind washing them again? But I'm not sure how many patients would actually do that. But it's an interesting thought that maybe we should be empowering patients to actually question that a little bit more. I think so. I think they should be, you know, they want, it's their body and they want to help take care of the wound as well. So they should ensure that, you know, staff are washing their hands. Mm. I think the patients at home is talking to friends and relatives who come in as well to ensure that they wash their hands. And if they've been stroking a dog or stroking the cat you know in the home environment to ask them to wash their hands as well again after those activities. Yeah absolutely. Uh, so sort of moving forwards a little bit can you provide us with some tips on how can a wound management practitioner engage their colleagues to ensure antimicrobial stewardship is adopted in clinical practice? Yes and as I've said before Sam education is key. Mm. So it could be face-to-face education or online education or study days and signposting people to appropriate documents to have a look at and to read and to read policies. But it is everyone's responsibility, antimicrobial stewardship. It's not just your healthcare professionals who work with the patient daily. It's domestic staff, it's catering staff, it's patients, it's relatives, it's whoever comes into contact with patients. So it's essential that all staff are aware aware of antimicrobial stewardship. And like I say, we should be having more in-house learning opportunities, being able to access up-to-date literature that talks about this very important area, attending study days, listening to podcasts like this, Mm -hmm. and accessing online courses. Because we know it's difficult for staff to get time away from the workplace and patients don't always know where they can access education. Mm. So online education that is free for people is essential. And of course, understanding about antibiotic usage and antimicrobial usage and why it's so important that we use it appropriately. Mm-hmm. And to speak to each other and to patients and to chat about what they know about it and what sort of help we can give them as well. So it's keeping everybody together mm-hmm. and getting everybody involved. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Karen. So uh, just um, following on from you talking about online education, free resources, I know that you've been responsible for working with others on an antimicrobial stewardship online course. And I understand that's been extremely successful in the short time it's been available. Now, in my understanding, it's an e-learning module and it was jointly developed with Yuma and the British Society for Antimicrobial Chemotherapy. So could you tell our listeners a little bit more about this course and how they can access it? Of course. It's quite exciting, actually, Sam, Mm. because we've had up to now just shy of 1,800 people who have signed up for it from 100 different countries. So it's absolutely mind-blowing, really, how many people are interested in this. It's it's hosted on the Future Learn website, Mm -hmm. and obviously you can go onto the Yuma website and be directed to it. Free to access, you just need to register, and then you don't need to pay anything. And there's six hours of learning, and it's split into quite bite-sized chunks. Mm -hmm. So there's week one, week two, and week three, which we say is roughly about two hours for each week. Mm -hmm. And you can dip in and dip out 
but the course itself stays open for three months. So we opened it in October and it was closed in December. Okay. And that's not because there's anything wrong with it. It's just that we want to look at all the comments and the feedback mm. and make sure it's working. Yeah. Then it will reopen again in February with any changes that we think are appropriate. Mm. Very interactive. So there's some typical PowerPoint sessions there, but there's lots of videos on there where there's key opinion leaders speaking about antimicrobial stewardship. We've got theory there and it links into practice. So there's real life case studies mm -hmm. and we get people who log on to it to be interactive. So to speak to each other, to answer questions and to share their experiences in their countries. And it's absolutely fascinating and really good to see how many people are talking to each other and saying, well, this is what we do. And somebody else has said, well, we wouldn't do that, but we would do this. Mm -hmm. And they'll give a rationale for why they do it as well. Some of the comments have been, it's really helped people. They'll go back and change their practice. They've learned lots, so they're going to share this knowledge with other people. Mm -hmm. So it will be back open in February. Good. As I say, around about six hours and split into three weeks of bite-sized chunks and very interactive. Good, that sounds great. So let's hope it continues to be success. So uh, thank you, Karen, for joining me this morning. Uh, you've been listening to Yuma podcast on the antimicrobial stewardship uh, program that Yuma are working on. If you want to learn more about Yuma's activities, you can visit our website, www.ewma.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn or Instagram at Yuma Wound. Yuma is organising every year the biggest wound management conference in Europe. The next Yuma conference will be held in London on the 13th to the 15th of May. So please save this date. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, don't forget to press like and share it with your colleagues. Until next time, thank you for listening.